Fighting Through Podcast, Episode 66, Leslie Cook, Part 3, New Guinea, Second World War. More great unpublished history. We ate our morning and evening meals with the Americans, and here again they excelled themselves. Breakfast was unlimited quantities of cereals, eggs, bacon or sausages, pancakes with syrup and coffee. MacArthur strode through where we were dug in and stood alone on a small rise just forward of us where he raised his field glasses to his eyes and stood motionless. The machine guns were still firing and bullets were kicking up puffs of dust all around us. One of the carriers came to us looking very troubled, saying, Master, come. He'd been sitting on the telephone wire beside the track when he'd felt something tugging at the wire. It could not be any of our own people, and the most likely alternative seemed to be an enemy patrol. Cocking our weapons, we moved up the track following the wire into the long grass. I was on guard. Suddenly, a man stood up less than ten metres in front of me and started to walk towards me. He was not wearing a steel helmet, which would have identified him positively as friend or foe, but I could see in the moonlight that his hair was black. He came a few metres towards me, then stopped. I had him in my sights and took up the first pressure on the trigger. Hello again, and another warm World War II welcome to the Fighting Through podcast. I'm Paul Shields, and a Bill Shield, whose World War II memoirs have been published by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. The aim of this podcast is to give you the stories behind the story, and you'll hear memoirs and interviews of veterans in all the countries and all the forces. I dare you to listen. But I just want to add, aren't we having a brilliant time with this show? Straight on with the storytelling today, I'm saving up the feedback and family stories for next time. Australian Leslie Eric Cook was in the 2nd of the 14th, and he served in Greece, Crete, New Guinea, Borneo and Japan. Today I've got the next instalment of Les's amazing memoirs, and this episode is in New Guinea and more. Last episode we heard about his war in Greece, with scary moments of madness careering down a steep incline in an out-of-control lorry in complete darkness. And we had a good laugh at Les's story about his oversized boots being able to execute an about turn with, without the boots actually moving. One for the archives, methinks. We ended learning about the surreal experience of a comrade burying himself alive in a tomb whilst sheltering from a strafing by enemy aircraft. The backstory to this episode is that back in September 1943, Australian and American forces launched a major offensive against the Japanese occupying New Guinea. 
tens of thousands of Allied troops participated in a series of operations that recovered great areas of occupied New Guinea and provided the springboard for General Douglas MacArthur's successful later advance into the Netherlands, East Indies and the Philippines. Five Australian divisions from both the Australian Imperial Force, the AIF, and the militia were employed in New Guinea as were a great part of the Royal Air Australian Force and most of the Royal Australian Navy. Today, this contribution has been largely overshadowed, like most other aspects of Australian history, by the dominance of Gallipoli and Kokoda. Beyond the scale of operations, however, the New Guinea offensive is also significant as it produced the war's closest and most successful cooperation between Australian diggers and American GIs. Defence planners in Australia and the United States are now once again focusing on the Pacific and this is a timely reminder of when Australian and American soldiers served, fought and died together in our region fighting to liberate what was then Australian territory. That information came from the Australian War Memorial website and there's a link in the show notes if you'd like to learn more. So that's the backdrop to Les's adventures. Here we go then. Watch out for my favourite yarn, Ode to the Dakota. Home via Burma When Japan entered the war in December 1941, the Australian Imperial Force had four divisions in the field. The 6th, the 7th and the 9th in the Middle East, and the 8th in Malaya. A start was made almost immediately to move the 6th and 7th divisions from the Middle East to the Southwest Pacific area to combat the Japanese advance towards Australia. By arrangement between the governments of Australia and Great Britain, the 9th Division was to stay in the Middle East to assist in driving the Axis armies out of Egypt and hopefully out of Africa altogether. The 6th and 7th Divisions were stationed in Syria and the Lebanon at the time. The German armies in North Africa and in the Soviet Union were sweeping all over them and it was expected they'd strike at the canal in a pincer movement from east and west. The eastern movement was expected to be through Iraq, Syria, the Lebanon and Palestine and we were there to prevent this movement. It was late in January 1942, just months after Japan entered the war, that we started to move by train from our various areas to El Kantara on the canal and from there to Port Tufik. It was a masterpiece of organisation to arrange all this and to have the ships available in such a short time, particularly as it was necessary simultaneously to bring British troops into Syria to replace us. We sailed from Port Tufik to Bombay on the passenger line Ile de France, which was the largest and most luxurious ship I've ever seen, and reached Bombay about the end of the first week in February. I can't remember how we made the change at Bombay, but we left the floating palace to board a small, rusty old freighter bearing the most ill-fitting name, Eastern Prince. We left Bombay on Friday the 13th of February, sailing south. 
As usual, we'd not been told where we were going, but it seemed to us that Singapore was the most likely destination. Singapore fell to the Japanese on 13th of February, and we headed further south, where the 2nd of the 3rd Machine Gun Battalion and the 2nd of the 2nd Pioneer Battalion and some of the units were put ashore at Java. Fortunately, no other troops were put ashore at Java, as the Japanese took prisoners of those who landed there almost as soon as they'd landed. To everyone's joy, we continued to sail south, and there was no doubt in our minds now that we were going home. The Southern Cross rose higher in the sky each night, and I think that we all made a check on the position of the sun each morning, to satisfy ourselves that we were still on a southerly course. There was a piano on the ship that was taken out onto the forward well deck at night if the weather was kind. One evening after tea, we were sitting or lying around the piano singing songs. We were going home and we were happy. It was a bright moonlit night, the moonlight being strong enough for the masts to throw shadows across the deck. It must have been before 10pm because the bugle call, the last post, had not sounded when, without the usual siren signal from the lead ship of the convoy, our ship suddenly began to change course. We were accustomed to the minor course changes of only a few degrees, which took place continuously as the convoy zigzagged. At night, these changes were signalled by the lead ship of the convoy sounding its siren, One whistle signifying a change to port, two whistles to starboard. Zigzagging was a ruse to frustrate the intentions of enemy submarines. A submarine could not approach an escorted convoy on the surface because it was no match for the guns of escorting warships. Having sighted a convoy, its tactics usually would be to note the course the convoy was on and its speed, then to move submerged on a course which would bring it ahead of the convoy in the most advantageous position for firing its torpedoes. This would take some hours at least, during which the submarine would mostly be running blind. The erratic course of the convoy as it zigzagged made it very difficult for the submarine crew to predict where the convoy would be. On this occasion, however, the ship continued to pass its normal zigzagging deviation until it was heading in the opposite direction. The shadow of the masts which had lain across the deck on the starboard side now lay on the port side. When it was apparent that the ship was not going to turn back to a southerly course, the singing stopped. Men looked at each other in silence and everyone went to bed. There was a rush on deck at first light next morning and there was great disappointment to find from the position of the sun that we were still sailing north. In due course we entered Colombo Harbour in Ceylon, Sri Lanka and dropped anchor. We were not allowed ashore at Colombo although some units were landed there to strengthen the Ceylon defences and stayed there for several months before going home. It was long after the war that we found out what had happened. Churchill had turned the convoy around with the intention of sending us to Burma. It's clear that in Churchill's mind it was more important to stop the Japanese thrust through Burma to India 
which if successful would enable them to link up with the Axis forces in the Middle East, than it was to halt their southward march towards Australia. I believe that Churchill's recorded as saying that by the time the Australian government became aware of what he'd done, we would have landed in Burma, the ships would have gone, and it would be then too late for the Australian government to do anything about it. Such a view, of course, would have been consistent with the policy of beat Germany first, agreed between Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin, but it did not have much regard for the people of Australia. In the event, it appears that General Blamey, who was still in the Middle East, somehow got wind of what was happening and alerted Prime Minister Curtin, who spoke immediately with Churchill by telephone, and had the decision reversed before it was too late. This must have been going on while we were in Colombo Harbour. Whatever went on behind the scenes, we eventually sailed from Colombo, and were told that we were going home. The fact is, of course, that by this time there was hardly any other place we could have gone that was not already occupied by the Japanese. We reached Fremantle on 15th of March, then sailed for Adelaide, arriving there on 24th of March. Apart from a submarine scare just after we rounded Cape Lewin, during which many depth charges were dropped by the escorting warships, it was an uneventful trip. It had taken 54 days for the convoy to get from Port Tufik to Adelaide, a trip which ordinarily at convoy speed of about 10 knots would take about 21 days. Shipboard Encounter On our way home from the Middle East in February 1942, we sailed from Port Tufik at the entrance to the Suez Canal on the French passenger line Ile de France. I believe that the ship had been built just before the war as a contender for the Blue Ribbon of the Atlantic, so it was very fast. Because of its speed, we sailed alone and unescorted, taking only a few days to reach Bombay. Apart from being the largest ship I've ever seen, it was the only passenger ship I was on in almost six months at sea on troop ships during the war. Not that I saw much of the passenger accommodation. My only clear memory of the voyage was my involvement in the accidental firing of a machine gun, which, but for some very good luck, could have had serious consequences. At that time, it was customary to mount the Bren light machine guns on the open decks for anti-aircraft defence. My gun was stationed on the boat deck near the top of a set of steps. The Bren gun crew consisted of two men, known as Number 1 and Number 2. Number 1 fired the gun and Number 2 changed and reloaded magazines when they were empty. The gun was mounted on a tripod when used against aircraft. We didn't take the job as seriously in that area as we had in the Mediterranean because the risks of air attack were minimal. Indeed, we welcomed the opportunity just to lie in the sun or read a book all day, relieved of all other duties and fatigues. We were engaged in this relaxing pastime when an unknown officer suddenly ran up the steps shouting, Action! 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 As whatever was happening did not appear to concern us, we initially did nothing. <laughs> we probably stood up after a few seconds 
because of the officer's presence. But that was all we did. How wrong we were. It transpired that this human dynamo was the ship's anti-aircraft officer, whose duty it apparently was to harass the gun crews and keep them on their toes. He was angry. He chastised us fiercely for our unsoldierly behaviour, then told us how he expected us to react to his command. He explained that when he called action, he expected number one instantly to take up the firing position and cock the gun, while number two stood to the left of the gun, holding a spare magazine, ready to change magazines when necessary. He then said he would go back down the steps and would make a second appearance at which he expected us to be much more responsive. He told us to carry on in the meantime with what we'd been doing before his arrival and to act as if we were not expecting him. Presumably this was so that the exercise would have in it the appropriate element of surprise. We did it to the best of our ability. On his reappearance and the command action, we leapt up. I took up the firing position, pulled back the cocking handle and moved the change lever from safe to automatic while my number two took a spare magazine from the box on the deck and stood by the gun. On his command clear the gun, I removed the magazine, eased the breech block forward, moved the change lever back to safe, replaced the magazine and closed the ejection slide. The officer expressed grudging satisfaction with our performance. Then he ordered us, number one and number two, to change roles and we would repeat the exercise. The whole affair had been unsettling for us. We felt that we'd been unjustly criticised solely because we'd not understood this particular officer's way of doing things. To make matters worse, my number two was relatively new to the gun and was of a somewhat nervous disposition anyway. We managed the first part of the drill well enough, but when he was given the command, clear the gun, he pulled the trigger. The the gun fired several rounds across the deck forward of our position before he released the trigger, much to the consternation of us around the gun. It was even more alarming for those innocent people going about their lawful occasions on the deck below as the bullets clanged off the steel upperworks of the ship and ricocheted away. Fortunately, nobody was hurt. I I don't remember seeing the anti-aircraft officer again. Either the short voyage ended before he got around to visiting us again, or perhaps he decided that discretion was the better part of valour, and stayed well clear of us. Friday the 13th Our convoy sailed from Bombay in India on Friday the 13th of February 1942. The more suspicious members of the crew muttered about this affront to fate and predicted a calamitous end to the voyage. We plodded up and down and around the Indian Ocean for the next four weeks at a convoy speed of ten knots. A convoy is necessarily limited to the speed of its slowest ship, and I think it most likely that our ship, Eastern Prince, enjoyed this doubtful honour. It was a very old ship, which at one time had carried cattle from South America, if the signs in Spanish in the holds were any indication. 
It was the only ship I was ever on where the rudder chains lay in open iron troughs running along each side of the cargo holds from the engine room to the rudder. Any changes of course were accompanied by the clanging of these chains and a shower of rusty red dust. As the convoy zigzagged continuously, this was a bit of a distraction at night until we all got used to it. I can hear the mournful sound of the siren as the lead ship of the convoy signalled a change in course, followed immediately by the rattle of the chains. We were two days out from Fremantle on Friday the 13th of March when the ship's engines gave up the ghost. This calamity appeared to vindicate the dire predictions of the pessimists. The convoy steamed on. The escorting destroyer signalled back good luck on the signal lamp as it disappeared hull down over the horizon, leaving us alone, wallowing in a heavy sea a long way from land. It's very uncomfortable on a ship without power in a heavy sea, and furthermore we were conscious that we displayed all the characteristics of a sitting duck. It needs to be understood that this was after the sinking by the Japanese of the British battleships Prince of Wales and Repulse, the cruisers Cornwall and Dorsetshire, the latter having been part of our escort at some time during our wanderings, and the loss of the cruisers HMAS Perth and USS Houston in the disastrous Sunda Straits battle on 28th of February. There weren't many of our fighting ships left afloat in the Indian Ocean, but fortunately for our peace of mind, we weren't aware of this at the time. The hatch covers over the engine room were removed, and the crew set to work with a will, spurred on no doubt by the significance of the two Friday the 13ths. It was probably about six hours before the engine started, and we were moving again. Even the most unskilled among us could tell that the engines weren't working properly, but at least they were turning, and we were on our way, rejoicing. The skipper probably didn't bother with zigzagging from then on, and the malfunctioning engines were pushed to the limit. The whole ship vibrated, even the rivets in the deck plates were rattling. We didn't see the convoy at sea again. But with all our handicap, we still managed to beat the other ships into Fremantle. That just goes to show what can be achieved by a combination of fear, superstition and engineering skills, even if one's starting several hours behind the pack on the slowest ship of the convoy with a sick engine. Adelaide the sudden and unexpected entry of Japan into the war in December 41 caught Australia off balance and unprepared. Arrangements were made almost immediately to bring back the 6th and 7th divisions of the AIF then serving in Syria. Many of these troops coming back from the Middle East in March 1942 landed at Adelaide. The arrival of more than 40,000 men created a real problem for the authorities. The military camps across Australia were already fully occupied and there was nowhere for us to go. As an interim measure, arrangements were made to billet us in private homes for the first few days after we arrived at Adelaide. This was a tremendous achievement, 
The mind boggles at the administrative hassle it must have been. To the best of my knowledge, however, the arrangements worked well, and as far as I'm aware, there were no unpleasant incidents. It's to the great credit of the people of Adelaide that they opened their homes to us. Participation in providing billets was voluntary, and I assume that householders could stipulate how many soldiers they were prepared to take, but generally there were four to each house. We had one completely unfurnished room for the four of us, where we slept on the floor using our own blankets. We ate breakfast and the evening meal with the family. The government paid an allowance to the householder to cover the additional cost of food, and I assume also that additional coupons for rationed food would have been provided. I can't remember how we handled the bathroom arrangements at the house, but this in itself is evidence that it wasn't a problem. I was billeted with three others at the home of a couple in their early thirties who had two young children. The husband worked at an engineering factory, engaged on war production work, and was working night shifts all the time we were there. Apart from when we first arrived at the house, I can't remember seeing him. After breakfast each day, we'd meet in the street with the others billeted in the same area. Marching from there to the nearest park, we would carry on with our normal training, returning to the house in the evening. I don't know if it was part of the official arrangement with the householder, or if it just evolved that way, but one of the four was detailed to stay behind each day to assist with the housework. We took it in turns to do this. Three of us were under 20 years of age. We'd been at war since we were 17 or 18, and had had little experience with women other than those in our own families. Our corporal was several years older and was married. The NCOs did not normally assist with the housework. The lady of the house was overly friendly in a way that we found disconcerting, and it wasn't long before we became reluctant to be alone in the house with her. We were arguing in the street one morning as to whose turn it was to stay behind when the corporal demanded to know what the fuss was about. He laughed when we explained what had been happening, calling us a bunch of dingoes to be afraid of the women. He said that he would stay behind that day himself to find out what was going on. I don't think that he came on parade with us again all the time we were at the house. Certainly none of us young ones ever helped with the housework again. If my memory serves me correctly, he continued to visit the house to help even after we left. We were billeted at the house for about two weeks, then moved into a temporary camp that had been established at a nearby park. I wonder what the people living near the park thought about the transformation of their park into an army camp. A working party would have arrived one day to erect the tents, followed the next day by columns of marching men carrying all their gear. There'd have been an equally sudden change back to a park when we left for the eastern states at night. One day... A bustling army camp with guards posted, bugle calls, groups of men marching, drilling and lining up for meals during the day, and the rows of tents lit by hurricane lamps at night. The next day, nothing but the rows of empty, silent tents that would have been removed soon after we left, and the park restored to its original condition. Within a very short time of our leaving, there would have been no sign that we'd ever been there. 
Hotels were out of bounds to the troops in the daytime while we were in Adelaide, and PKs were posted at each hotel to ensure that this rule was observed. There was a milk bar opposite the hotel where three of us were on PK duty one day. Three girls worked at the milk bar and the boldest among us went over to ask if one of them would go out with him. The girl was reluctant to go out alone with a stranger but said she'd go if the six of us went as a group. This was agreed and we took them to dinner and to a picture show. My partner's name was Peggy Cameron. I can't remember how it was decided who partner whom, but perhaps it happened this way because she and I were the youngest in the two groups. i just turned 19, she was 18. Peggy had recently come to Adelaide from Mount Gambier and was living with her married sister. She was engaged to a young man in the RAAF who was in Canada training under the Empire Training Scheme, but I didn't know this for some time after we first met. A special affinity develops between us, and but for her loyalty to her commitment, it's probable that we'd have become more than just friends. We were together as often as possible. We walked in the Adelaide Hills from a tram terminus with the appropriate name of Paradise, and along the beach at Glenelg. I remember there was a small shop at Paradise that sold Devonshire teas with real clotted cream, something I'd not seen elsewhere since before the war. I'd left Australia when I was 17 and had not even been out with a girl before I met Peggy. She will always hold a special place in my memory. It's of interest to note here the very strong desire in most men going to war to have established a permanent relationship with a girl before leaving for overseas. There was a need to have someone at home to think of and to communicate with and to feel sure that whoever it was would be waiting when one returned home. It appeared that the girls also were similarly affected in that most of them wanted a relationship with someone in the armed forces, preferably someone who was overseas or was likely to be sent overseas, directly engaged in the war. I'm sure that a psychologist would have a simple explanation for these feelings. Some of these relationships survived the war, but a great many did not. We were in Adelaide for about a month before going to Melbourne for a few days home leave, then on to Queensland and finally to New Guinea. In the manner of the times, we left at night without warning, and there would not have been any opportunity for me to let Peggy know that I was going. Certainly, I have no recollection of saying goodbye to her, and I'm sure that I would have remembered if I'd done so. The war had brought us together fleetingly, and just as suddenly had parted us. I'm embarrassed to admit that I cannot remember whether or not Peggy and I wrote regularly to each other after I left, but she must have known my address, because I had a very distressful letter from her in December of that year. Her fiancé had been killed in a bombing raid over Germany, and her mother had died suddenly and unexpectedly soon after. As can be imagined, she felt that her entire world had collapsed. What can anyone say at such a time? I wrote back saying how sorry I was, but my reply was of necessity very short, and possibly not as sensitively worded as it might have been. It's most likely 
that it would have ended with the advice to be strong and of good courage, and to face the front like a soldier, or other clumsy words to that effect. I'm afraid that my words would not have been of much help to her. We were fighting in the most awful conditions in the swamps at Gona, on the north coast of New Guinea, when I received her letter. Everything that came to us had been dropped by aircraft and carried forward by hand. We had no paper or pen to write our replies. The only thing we could do was write in pencil on the back of the letter and readdress the used envelope, which of course could not be sealed. I don't know how the outgoing letters were taken back, but in those conditions it would have been a hazardous business at best. Much of our mail could have gone astray or been inadvertently damaged on its way from the forward area. I didn't hear from Peggy Cameron again, although I can't remember thinking of it at the time, it occurs to me now that perhaps she didn't receive my letter. She would not have known where I was, of course, but it was public knowledge that the Australian Imperial Force, back from the Middle East, was fighting in New Guinea. If she didn't get my letter, perhaps she thought that I was not interested enough to write, or else, in view of the other recent happenings in her life, that I was also dead. I can't remember clearly now what I thought when I didn't get another letter from her, but probably I assumed that she wasn't interested. I wonder now if she did receive my letter and did write back, but her letter did not reach me. The whole period from July 1942 to August 44 is somewhat vague to me now, but my conscience bothers me that I didn't make any subsequent attempt to contact her. I could use the excuse of the awful conditions at Gona when her letter arrived. I could use the excuse that I was in and out of hospital several times after returning to Australia at the end of January 43, and that I was back in New Guinea for the Le Ramu Valley campaign six months later. I could use any number of excuses. But the fact of the matter is that I didn't even try. Whatever the reason... I feel somehow that perhaps I failed her in her hour of need. And for this, I'm sorry. Dugout Doug MacArthur By the time we got back from the Middle East at the end of March 1942, the Japanese had already reached almost as far south as they were to get in the war. General Douglas MacArthur, who'd commanded the US forces in the Philippines during the Japanese invasion, had been ordered by the US government to escape and come to Australia to take command of the Allied forces. From my earliest recollection of MacArthur, he was known by his n- <laughs> he was known by the nickname Dugout Doug. I can only assume that this title was given to him by the Americans. We'd never even heard of him, so it couldn't have originated here. It was a derogatory title that had apparently been given to him in the Philippines, where, rumour had it, he'd remained in his underground shelter during the bombing and shelling, the implication being that he lacked courage. I only saw him under fire once, but his behaviour then certainly belied the rumours. Indeed, it would not be overstating the case to say that his actions on that occasion were crassly foolhardy. 
The government of Australia was happy to give complete control of our military forces to MacArthur, but unfortunately he was quite unable or unwilling to understand the Australian character or our system. His way, and indeed the US way of doing things, was very different to ours. For example, an American general could, in his own right, summarily reduce an officer to the ranks or dismiss him. Throughout the entire British and the Empire armies, our officers received their commissions from the King, and only the King could take them away. Although our General, later Field Marshal Blamey, had nominal control under MacArthur of the Australian ground forces in the Pacific area, either he, Blamey, showed great weakness of character, or actually had no say at all. This is evidenced by the unwarranted removal of several excellent and very well-respected Australian officers during the 1942 Papuan campaign, something for which we never forgave either MacArthur or Blamey. These officers were not reduced in rank, but went into military obscurity, and the AIF was the poorer for the gap that they left. I know of no other instance during the entire war when senior Australian officers were removed in this fashion. MacArthur was tall with an impressive bearing and was a consummate showman. It was rumoured that he designed the red braid ornamentation on this special cap that he wore at all times. Wherever he went, he seemed always to be surrounded by an entourage of senior officers, press photographers, etc. On the morning of our first day ashore at Balikpapan, we were held up waiting for the 2nd of the 16th Battalion to take a feature on our left flank before we could move forward. We were dug in, taking cover from intermittent medium machine gun fire from a position about a kilometre away. It was random rather than aimed fire at that range, but the bullets would still have been fatal and we were staying in our holes keeping our heads down unless something had to be done. I will digress to relate an event I observed here that I had often seen portrayed in western films before the war, but had not previously seen used in real life, nor did I ever see it used again. Two of our people were trying to locate the troublesome machine guns so that fire could be directed at them from the ships standing offshore. One man was lying down with field glasses at one end of a small ridge while the other stood below the top of the ridge at the other end holding a long stick with a felt hat on one end of it. When he was in position, the man with the hat would call to his mate, Are you right? On receiving a sign that the observer with the glasses was watching the hill in front, the man with the hat would raise the hat above the top of the ridge and, w and would run along below the ridge until he reached his mate. This operation was repeated several times while we waited there and each time the moving hat attracted concentrated fire but the observer was apparently unable to locate the guns. Perhaps they were below the brow of the hill on the other side, firing over the hill, directed by an unseen observer on the forward slope. Whatever the truth of the matter, the two were still diligently at it when we went forward, and the enemy gunners were responding just as dutifully each time. Interestingly enough, there were no bullet holes in the hat when we left. 
While we'd been waiting there, MacArthur had come up with his entourage of photographers and senior officers, including our brigadier Ivan Doherty. MacArthur strode through where we were, dug in without as much as acknowledging our presence, and stood alone on a small rise just forward of us, where he raised his field glasses to his eyes, and stood motionless while the photographers took pictures. A few metres in front of him, the jungle rose up like a solid green wall. He wouldn't have been able to see anything in the direction he was looking. It was an act for the benefit of the cameras, and perhaps also to impress us. MacArthur sadly failed to understand the Australian character if he thought we would see <laughs> if he thought we would see any merit in what he was doing. Indeed, in the circumstances, it's difficult to imagine anything he could have done would have, that would have impressed us less. The machine guns were still firing, and bullets were kicking up puffs of dust all around us. Fearful that the Supreme Commander might be killed while visiting the Australian lines, our brigadier was remonstrating with the great man, even to the point of grabbing his clothes to try to get him to move to a safer place but without success until after the photographs had been taken. The ordinary diggers keeping our heads down, as would any person of normal intelligence, were calling out, Get down, you mag, you're drawing the crabs! <laughs> These ins... <laughs> oh. These insubordinate comments from the rank and file would have brought swift retribution anywhere except on the battlefield. So engrossed was the supreme commander with the photography business, and so isolated was he that he seemed not even to hear them. Our own officers no doubt agreed with us. In any event, we heard no more about it. When the photographs had been taken, the great man turned and strode back through us again as though we didn't exist. We felt belittled by his lack of manners. In this regard, it had been our experience that with all their superior attitudes and standoffishness, any senior British officer would at least have spoken to us in similar circumstances. It's equally certain to say that none would have been so foolish is to expose themselves unnecessarily just for the sake of the camera. As an example of the superior attitude adopted towards us by some senior British officers, I heard one to say to another after the fall of Bardia in the Western Desert in January 1941, Wonderful soldiers, the Australians, but socially impossible. Toowoomba and the Brisbane Line Returning from the Middle East in March 1942, we were given a few days home leave, then went to Toowoomba in Queensland. Much has been said and written since the war about the so-called Brisbane Line, a line of defence intended to keep the enemy out of the southern states. Governments and military leaders have denied that there was ever a policy to abandon the north of Australia to the Japanese if they'd landed on the mainland. The fact is, of course, that there was nothing to prevent them putting a force ashore anywhere in the north if they'd chosen. The AIF units recently turned from the Middle East were the only effective 
fully armed forces in Australia at the time and they were located not far north of Brisbane. While it would have been possible quickly to move us a short distance to oppose or contain a landing on the east coast, that was the maximum extent of our flexibility. I believe that the authorities recognised that if the Japanese did make a landing at Darwin or elsewhere in the north, there was nothing they could do but trust that the vast distances would slow down the enemy advance until more aid could be provided by America. It would not have been a first-choice policy, of course, but there's no doubt in my mind that the Brisbane line existed. I dug defensive positions on it. There was great apprehension in Australia, then, at what appeared to be the very real likelihood that the Japanese would attack the mainland. Their bestial behaviour towards a civilian population was now well known and feared with good reason. The AIF had been welcomed home from the Middle East with open arms and we were still being treated as saviours. We were accorded special privileges almost everywhere we went. It's of interest to note here that those of us who'd been in the Middle East were readily distinguishable from the rest by the puggarees, hatbands, that we wore on our felt hats. The standard Australian army issue bands, which we'd worn when we went away, had been a narrow strip of khaki felt, and these were still in general use in Australia. While we were in the Middle East, we were issued with much more ornate woven bands of a lighter coloured material. I think that these puggaries, as they were officially named, were made in India. Certainly the word puggery is Indian. We were camped on the race course at Toowoomba and I remember the three months we spent there as my quietest period of the war. We continued training as we always did in camp but it seems to me that we were given more freedom than usual. Perhaps our visibility on the streets was intended to give assurance to the people although the army was not known for having such sensitivity. Whatever the reason, we enjoyed the opportunity to mix with our own civilian people again. I met a girl named Ailsa Weir at a dance a couple of days after we arrived, and maintained a friendship with her for the time I was at Toowoomba. I was only 19 years old. She was older than me, but I can't remember how much. The race course was about three kilometres on one side of town, Alisa lived about the same distance on the other side, in an area known then either as the Ridge or the Range. I can't remember. Um, there was no public transport. As often as I could get away, I'd walk into town, meet her where she worked, and walk home with her. I can't remember how often I did this, but probably it would have been several times a week. Ailsa lived with her parents. I'd have the evening meal with the family and often spent the evening with them. Her father had been in the first war, so we had a common bond, although perhaps we often talked too much of soldiers' things to suit the ladies. I was always made to feel very welcome in their home, even by Ailsa's younger brother. Mr Weir was a staunch advocate of something called the Douglas Credit System, which he tried often to explain to me, without much success I'm afraid. 
As far as I can remember, it was something spawned in the Depression, and the concept seemed to be that the government would provide money to young married people at a time when they needed it most to enable them to establish a home. The money would be repaid when the family got on its feet financially. I can't remember if the scheme was ever implemented, and I have to confess that it was not of great interest to me at the time. I, m- I must have appeared interested, however, or Mr Weir would not have persevered with me, but it's most likely that I did this out of politeness. After the evening meal, Elsa and I would sometimes go back into town to a dance or to the pictures. Walking was the only way of getting there. By the time we reached her home at the end of the evening, she'd walked nine kilometres after her day's work, and when I'd returned to camp, I'd walked eighteen. Even on the days when we did not get back into town, I walked a distance of twelve kilometres each time I went to her place, and this was additional to whatever I'd done in a day's training. All this extra walking was to stand me in good stead when we started to climb the mountains in New Guinea. When I left Toowoomba in July 1942, I weighed more than 12 stone, 78 kilograms, which was the heaviest I've ever been, and probably I was physically in better condition then than I have been before or since. After six months in the mountains and swamps of New Guinea, my weight had dropped to about 8 stone, 50 kilograms, and my physical condition was such that I doubt if I could have made the walk to and from Elsa's home. I've never attained the peak weight or the degree of fitness I enjoyed at Toowoomba. The war was going along quietly and comfortable for me in the backwater at Toowoomba, but bigger and more important events were stirring to the north. A call came one morning for volunteers to reinforce the 7th Division, which even then was embarking on ships to go to New Guinea. We left Toowoomba at midday the same day and sailed the following morning. I was unable to contact Ailsa before I left. I'd like to think that I asked one of those who stayed behind to tell her what had happened, but I cannot remember doing even that. She would not have known where I'd gone, neither would she have had an address for me. We soon became very busy in New Guinea, and I suppose that letter-writing was not given a high priority. It's to my everlasting shame, however, that I did not even extend her the courtesy of writing to let her know what had happened to me. By the time we came home from New Guinea six months later, it probably seemed to me to be too late. I wonder what happened to Ailsa. I think sometimes of what might have been if that call for volunteers to reinforce the 7th Division had not come in July 1942 or if I'd been out of camp when it came. This is one of several events in my life that lead me to believe that we have very little control over our own destiny. Our lives are governed largely by chance happenings, and our futures, in most cases, are a matter of luck. The Danger of Ignorance Accidental happenings are responsible for many casualties in war, and some of these, at least on the ground, are the result of carelessness or ignorance. Perhaps the majority fall into those categories. We all came to accept them as inevitable, 
although in some cases retrospective analysis showed that they might have been avoided. The trauma, we hadn't heard of that word in those days, suffered by a person who'd accidentally killed one of our own, however extenuating the circumstances, probably affected them for the rest of their lives. We had arrived at Gona on the 19th of November 1942 to find the Japanese well prepared. Their main defensive positions consisted of strongly constructed bunkers, very well camouflaged and impervious to any weapon we had. Even the 25-pounder field guns, when they came into action a few days later, could not make any noticeable impression on them. The Air Force medium bombers also had been unsuccessful and it was decided to try the big four-engined B-17 bombers using 500-pound, 220-kilogram bombs with the hope that the heavier bombs might be effective. Our lines and the enemy lines were only a few metres apart in some places and the entire battle area was small, being probably less than six square kilometres in all. The inaccuracy of heavy bombers operating from a great height was well known and it was decided to withdraw our people to positions about two kilometres back during the hours of darkness the previous night to reduce the risk of the bombs falling on us by mistake. It was hoped, forlornly as it happened, that the heavy bombers would have so devastated the area that we'd be able to subdue the remaining enemy relatively easily. The withdrawal was carried out successfully, but not without the enemy becoming aware of it. Speaking to the men from one company the next day, several had seen what each believed was a Japanese soldier standing beside the track watching them go. Uncertain in the darkness of his identity, and as the withdrawal was necessarily being carried out in complete silence, no action was taken against him. Men on their feet in these circumstances are extremely vulnerable, and nobody was prepared to take the risk of challenging him. The Japanese apparently interpreted our withdrawal for what it was, and immediately moved into the positions we'd vacated. By so doing, most of them escaped the worst effects of the bombing. None of the bombs fell on the positions we'd vacated. Although, under Murphy's law, I'm sure this would not have been the case if we had remained there. For that matter, the bombs didn't do any damage to the enemy bunkers either. We'd withdrawn before midnight. After digging our weapons pits, those not on guard went to sleep. We were in open Kunai grass country, the grass being more than one and a half metres high in most places, and this made for limited visibility. It was a bright, moonlit night. I was awoken to go on guard a few hours after we arrived, and was sitting on the edge of the hole, unable to see much beyond a couple of metres in front of me, where the grass had been flattened. When I had gone to sleep... I knew that there were none of our people between us and the enemy. Suddenly, a man stood up less than ten metres in front of me and started to walk towards me. He wasn't wearing a steel helmet, which would have identified him positively as friend or foe, but I could see in the moonlight that his hair was black. He came a few metres towards me, then stopped. I had him aligned in the sights.
I'd taken up the first pressure on the trigger and was about to say quietly, Who's that? Before firing, when I heard the sound of a cork being pulled from a water bottle. This homely sound, together with the other sounds, caused me to realise that another unit had moved in, in front of us. As I hadn't known that they were there, I assumed that they would also not know that we were just behind them, so I decided not to challenge the man for fear of alarming him and perhaps the others. After standing for a few seconds, the man walked back and disappeared below the grass, presumably to lie down to sleep. We found the next morning that another unit, withdrawing some hours after us, had indeed moved in just in front of us, and neither knew that the other was there. It's easy to say that this potentially dangerous situation should not have been allowed to occur, but it had. If I, or one of the other guards from either unit, had fired at sound or movement, there would have been a general exchange of fire, and certainly some casualties before the error was discovered. Even though in the circumstances none of us could have been blamed, it was us who would have had to live with it. Fearless Frankie Ford I think this is a big Mickey take about one of the politicians of the day, taking the rise out of him no less than today's politicians are brought down a peg or two. The following poem appeared in Smith's Weekly, or The Bulletin, late in 1942. The Honourable F. M. Ford, MP, was Minister for the Army in the Curtin Government at the time. Ford visited Papua New Guinea in September 1942 when the Japanese advance was halted at Ayobewa Ridge, only 50 kilometres by air from Port Moresby. And this is a poem. <laughs> a bunch of Japs were whooping it up on the old Kokoda track, and things were looking grim for us with the boys all falling back. A call went out for a superman to halt the enemy horde, and the message was flashed to Canberra, send fearless Frankie Ford. Fearless Frank flung down his pen, and he donned his old toupee, and he jammed his briefcase full of reports, and up to the trail strode he. Up through the rain and mud and slush, he strode on that fateful day, till he reached a point where the enemy was a short five miles away. <laughs> he stood on the track with his hat turned back, and he boldly shouted, Shoo! And all that stood between him and the foe was a fighting brigade or two. <laughs> that was the end of things for the Jap, the men who fought there tell, for the infantry heard the sound of his voice, and each man muttered, Hell! and they closed with the sons of Nippon, and sent them reeling back, in mad array and sad dismay, up the old Kokoda track. It was better to fight, said the infantry, than to stick around there and be bored, by a bunch of reports and a two-hour speech from fearless Frankie Ford. Apropos this visit, a story went the round in 7th Division, 
of a conversation between Ford and one of our engineers who was working corduroying the worst sections of the jeep track between McDonald's Plantation and Owers Corner. I cannot vouch for its authenticity. Ford, what are you doing? Engineer, building a road of course, what's it look like I'm doing? Are you in the AIF or in the militia? AIF of course. What do you do with these logs? Look mate, you might not have any work to do. I'm busy. Get on your way and stop asking me stupid questions. Do you know who I am? No mate, I've never seen you in my life before and if I never see you again it'll be too soon. I'm Ford, the Minister for the Army. Engineer, straightening back and removing hat. I'm sorry I spoke like that, Padre. You blokes are doing a good job up here. (laughs) Yeah, very good. (laughs) My first flight, or Ode to the Dakota. Very few Australians had been in an aircraft when the war started in 1939. Most of us had not even seen one on the ground, and except for the intercapital city routes, one didn't see many in the air either. This state of affairs was to change very rapidly during the war and in the following years. I can remember as a child attending primary school in the country. An aircraft flying over was such an unusual event that we were let out of school to see it. It was a single-engined biplane built of wood, and cloth, carrying two people in open cockpits, who waved to us as it flew over close to the ground. It must have been a military aircraft, because it had the red, white and blue roundels on the wings and fuselage. As far as I can recall, this was the only aircraft I ever saw until I was about 14. After toiling through the steamy jungle of the Owen Stanley range and the coastal swamps in New Guinea for about six months in 1942-43, the few of us that were left were finally being relieved. We'd marched back along the muddy track from Gona to the airstrip at Popundetta to be flown to Port Moresby. The airstrip was nearly as muddy as the track and was unusable until it had dried out after the heavy rain that fell on most days while we were there. Fortunately, the drying out process was quite fast due to the intense heat of the midday sun, but often there were days when it could not be used at all. The incoming aircraft brought supplies or more men from Port Moresby and took back the sick and wounded and those like us who were being relieved. They were twin-engine Dakotas, or C-47s, as they were officially designated by the US Air Force, each carrying 20 men. They were not pressurised aircraft, and even at the relatively low altitude of 3,000 metres necessary to cross the Owen Stanley range, they were cold, noisy and uncomfortable by modern standards. The men sat on long seats that ran down each side of the body of the aircraft, their equipment and weapons being dumped on the floor at their feet. There were perspex windows along both sides of the aircraft, each window having a hole about 50mm diameter with a grubber grommet around it. On asking what the holes were for, 
we were told that they were to enable the occupants to fire at attacking enemy fighters with their personal weapons. Our logic told us that this would be singularly ineffective, but just for psychological reasons alone, I suppose that it would have been better than just sitting there doing nothing. Certainly, it's devastating to be under attack and completely unable to retaliate, however ineffective the retaliation might be, and it's always possible that it would at least distract the enemy pilot. We'd camped at the side of the strip for several days waiting for the weather to clear. Apparently, it was safer to land on a muddy airstrip than it was to take off from one because the incoming aircraft landed while the strip was still soft and muddy. As the aircraft landed and ran along the strip, the wheels threw up a shower of mud over the body and tail area. When the aircraft had been unloaded, we had to wait a few hours for the strip to dry out enough for them to take off again. The Dakota had the old-style landing wheel configuration of two wheels at the front and a smaller tail wheel at the back. When the aircraft was on the ground, the tail plane assembly was less than a metre above the ground. As we walked out to board the aircraft, one of the crew was inspecting the mud-spattered tail plane assembly, while the other crew member apparently worked the controls to ensure they moved freely. By this time, the mud on the aircraft had dried and become hard in the heat of the midday sun. It didn't do much for our confidence to see, to see the man on the ground kicking the tailplane assembly and great clods of dried mud falling from it before the ailerons could be moved. When the crew was apparently satisfied that it could fly, we boarded the aircraft. It was a novel experience for all of us and it would not be an exaggeration to say that we were somewhat apprehensive. The door was shut the engine started and the aircraft taxied slowly to the end of the strip where it turned around and increased speed preparatory to take off. As it gathered speed it became apparent even to our inexperienced eyes that something was wrong. The aircraft was pointing forward but appeared to be sliding sideways to the right towards the trees at the end of the strip which seemed to be getting dangerously close. The pilot backed off the throttle, turned the aircraft around and slowly taxied back to the place we'd just left. One of the crew came out of the cabin, walked down the length of the aircraft without saying anything, opened the loading door and jumped to the ground. Again there was an inspection of the tailplane assembly, accompanied by what apparently was the ritualistic kicking, the sound of which reverberated through the body of the aircraft. The man then boarded the aircraft, shut the door, returned to the cabin again without saying anything to us, and the engines were restarted. The second attempt to take off was equally unsuccessfully, apparently for the, <laughs> apparently for the same reason, and was followed by the same remedial measures. It might have been a routine daily procedure for the crew, and not worthy of comment, but by this time we were starting to lose faith altogether in this 20th century mode of transport and could easily have been talked into leaving the aircraft and walking back over the mountains to Port Moresby. It seemed to us also that kicking the aircraft was a very rough way of treating what we took to be a somewhat delicate machine, although it was apparent that it was more rugged than we'd thought. The aircraft left the ground successfully on the third attempt, 
but not without what to us was some alarming skidding and fishtailing. The mountains were covered with cloud, so neither the track over which we'd toiled for so many weeks, nor any of the villages along it, were visible. We were on the ground at Port Moresby about one hour later, by which time we'd become seasoned air travellers, and were loud in our praises of this fast and relatively comfortable way of moving. These same Dakotas were to move our division three times by air during the war. Such was their reliability, and such was the competency of the US Air Force crews manning them, that to the best of my knowledge we didn't lose a single man from aircraft accident while flying with them. A division comprised about 15,000 men, with all their arms and equipment. Greater love hath no man than this. Our advance along the coast from Balik Papan was held up by a battery of heavy guns that neither the Navy nor the Air Force had been able to silence. In just a few seconds at first light the previous day, these guns had put out of action our tanks that had been brought up by landing craft under the cover of darkness to support an attack. A reconnaissance at midnight had reached within about 50 metres of the guns and it was decided to attempt to destroy them with explosives. The plan was for a fighting patrol to get close enough in daylight to throw explosive charges into the bunkers that housed the guns and then to get away as quickly as possible. The task was given to 18 platoon. The explosive charges were in haversacks, each containing 25 pounds, about 10 kilograms, of high explosive. They were designed to explode eight seconds after being armed and thrown. Their power was such that one of them would close the mouth of a tunnel or destroy a bunker completely. The patrol was able to infiltrate the enemy position under cover of an airstrike. Finding the enemy to be unaware of its presence, the patrol attacked. Largely due to the element of surprise, the attack succeeded beyond expectation, bumping the enemy completely out of a well-prepared position around the guns. The explosive charges were not used. Expecting an immediate counter-attack, we hurriedly took up defensive positions, making use of what cover there was. We did not expect to be given time to dig in before the enemy realised how few we were and mounted his attack before we could be reinforced. After the last few stray shots had died away, silence reigned over the area. The Japanese were notorious for the amount of noise that they often made preceding an attack. They blew whistles or bugles, then shouted words of command, followed by an absolute storm of fire and more shouting. These are the sounds we expected. We lay there with our fingers on the triggers, straining our eyes and ears. Suddenly, a single voice was heard coming from more than 50 metres in front of us, calling a three-syllable word. This word was repeated at intervals and each time he called, the caller was coming closer to us. It was so unexpected as to be eerie in a way, which caused the hair on the back of one's neck to crawl. The voice continued until the caller was only a few metres from us. Jack Sullivan from Western Victoria was on my right. 
He was higher up the hill than I was and had a better view. I looked across at him, saying in a whisper, "'What's going on, Sully?' He replied, "'I'm f***ed if I know, but if this bloke comes any closer, I've got him.' And he took off his steel helmet to make his head less conspicuous, and he settled down over the sights of his rifle. The caller stopped moving, but repeated the call several times before once again there was silence, and we heard him no more. Discussing the event later, we decided that the three-syllable word was the name of a mace who possibly had been killed during our attack. Having lived there, the caller would certainly have known the area well. He could not have known exactly where we were, but he certainly knew that we were still there and that any step could have been his last. Knowing this, he'd come back into the jaws of death looking for his mace. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend. Herein lies one of the awful tragedies of war. On the one side was a man acting above and beyond the call of duty, risking his life for the most noble of reasons. On our side, we would certainly have killed him if he'd not stopped where he did and we would not have given a moment's thought to his exemplary courage and unselfishness. I hope that he survived the war. A jaundiced view and meeting the Americans. Back from the shaggy ridge for a rest, we were camped on the Faria River near Dumpu village in the Ramu Valley in New Guinea. Having acquired its philosophy from the hundreds of years of experience of the British armies, the AIF knew better than to let the men rest when they'd been taken out of the line for a break. It's bad for their morale for them to have nothing to do in such circumstances. It allows too much time in which to think. For this reason, work was always found to keep us busy. Although this work often seemed to us to be unnecessary... There's no doubt in my mind that it was in our best interests, even though we always complained long and loud about it. As a matter of interest, although it might sound paradoxical, it's a fact that an army's morale is getting low when the men stop complaining. In this regard, there's a very real difference between the normal, good-natured complaining that always goes on and self-pity, or even worse, silence. We'd marched up the valley from Kaipit village about a month before. The floor of the valley is flat, open grassland, almost devoid of trees, the Kanai grass being about two metres high in most places. It's quite suitable for wheeled transport, except in those places where the track meets the several small rivers that cross the valley to feed the Ramu River. Apparently, it was considered necessary to make these river crossings safer for the vehicles coming up behind us. I was with a party sent back down to the valley to the Goosap River, a distance of about 30 kilometres, to work on that crossing. We expected to be away for about a week. Carrying the necessary tools and some bully beef, biscuits and tea and sugar in sandbags, we set off one morning arriving at the Goosap in the early afternoon. 
We dumped the tools and taken off our equipment, and we were surveying the task in the time-honoured fashion when a jeep containing an American officer arrived. He was with an airborne engineering company that was building an airstrip across the other side of the valley, several kilometres away. Their camp wasn't even visible from where we were because of the long grass. We talked for a long while, as people meeting in these circumstances will. We told him where we'd come from, the purpose of our being there, and how long we expected to stay. Looking a little puzzled, he asked us where we'd be living. We pointed to our equipment, weapons, and tools lying on the bank of the river. When he asked what we'd do if it rained, we replied we'd get wet. He expressed great concern that we should be expected to live in such primitive conditions. They were palatial compared with those we'd been accustomed to on the slopes of Shaggy Ridge, and he suggested that we come over and live in their camp. Thanking him for the offer, we pointed out that their camp was so far away from our task that we'd spend most of every day just getting to and from the river crossing. He overcame this objection by saying he'd lend us a jeep while we were there. He wouldn't take no for an answer, so we piled our gear into his jeep and went with him. He allocated us a large empty tent. The tent was fly and mosquito-proof. It had a wooden floor about a metre above the ground, and we were given stretchers and mattresses. The mess hut had a concrete floor, galvanised iron roof. It was fly-proofed and had tables and bench seats. (laughs) Compared to what we'd been used to, it was five-star accommodation, to use a modern expression. We ate our morning and evening meals with Americans while we were there, and here again they excelled themselves. Breakfast was unlimited quantities of cereals, eggs, bacon or sausages, pancakes with syrup and coffee. I can't remember the other meals, but no doubt they were equally lavish. Again, compared to the handful of bully beef, a couple of dry hardtack biscuits and sometimes a mug of black tea that we normally had, it was gourmet living. Thanksgiving Day came while we were there and this was accorded very special attention in the way of food. A B-25 bomber had flown up from Townsville carrying in its empty Bombay a load of frozen turkeys and other delicacies for the occasion. We ate like kings. It's most likely we didn't go to work at all that day. We certainly wouldn't have been able to work very well in the midday heat after that meal. It seems a strange thing to say, but we soon tired of the rich food at the American camp. Perhaps this was because our stomachs were unused to it. Whatever the reason, we weren't sorry to finish the job and go back to our plain bully beef and biscuits and back to our own people again. I didn't get to the top of Shaggy Ridge. Soon after we returned to Dumpu, I became sick with a debilitating complaint. I was not too bad if I didn't eat anything, but I was sick as soon as I did eat. There's a limit to how long one can keep going in this condition, getting weaker every day. So I went to the doctor who immediately diagnosed my problem as malaria. I'd already suffered four bouts of malaria and was certain that whatever was the matter with me, it was not malaria. Apart from anything else, I didn't have the fever or headaches that normally accompany that disease. The doctor was unimpressed with my arguments and gave me a dose of liquid quinine and a couple of aspros.
he told me to take it easy and to come back and see him the next day if I wasn't better. I swallowed the quinine and instantly was sick again just outside the doctor's tent. Fortunately for him, I had nothing in my stomach except the quinine. I wasn't feeling well, so I made my way down to the river to have a wash. I must have looked unwell because a complete stranger came over to me asking what was the matter. I explained the symptoms and told him of the doctor's reaction to my arguments. He commented that my skin was very yellow, but I didn't see this as unusual because we all had slightly yellow skin from the anti-malarial drug Atebrin we were taking. He pulled down one of my eyelids to look at the white of my eye and said immediately, You've got yellow jaundice, hepatitis. You'd better get back up to that doctor immediately or you'll soon be dead. Apparently the whites of one's eyes become yellow as the result of jaundice. I went back to the doctor and asked him to come out into the open where the light was better and showed him my eyes. As predicted by my unknown benefactor, the doctor immediately tied an evacuation label on the top button of my shirt and I was flown back to hospital at Port Moresby with other sick and wounded the same afternoon. I felt a bit of a fraud to be on the aircraft As had been the case since I first started to suffer with a complaint, I didn't feel too bad as long as I didn't eat anything. Although I was getting weak by this time, I really didn't think my condition was serious enough to warrant evacuation. One interesting side effect of my condition was that it was the only time in my life that I have had my knees actually knocking together uncontrollably with fear. I'd often read of this phenomena, but thought it was just an expression used by writers. It isn't. The moon was full the last few nights before I was evacuated. Each night a lone, slow-flying Japanese aircraft would fly up and down the valley, dropping small bombs indiscriminately. The missions had little military value, except they kept us awake. I don't recall anybody being hurt. One would hear the sound of the aircraft coming closer, then it would pass overhead, and one would wait for the sound of the bomb falling and exploding. The aircraft would then go back to its predetermined turnaround point and reverse its course, passing overhead on its way back, sometimes dropping a bomb near us and sometimes just passing over. This went on all night when the sky was clear, with the aircraft passing overhead about every 15 minutes. Perhaps it was my weakened physical condition from the disease, but whatever the cause, it was a matter of great concern to me that the only way I could stop my knees knocking together when I heard the aircraft approaching was to get up and walk about until it had passed over us. I was confined to bed in the hospital at Port Moresby, where I languished for almost three months, so perhaps I was worse than I thought. My 21st birthday came and went while I was there without me even being aware of it, not that I would have been able to do much to celebrate anyway. My whole system appeared to have collapsed and I suffered with several different forms of infections, some of which didn't leave me completely for nearly a year. I don't know if this was the result of the jaundice only or if it was a combination of several factors. I'd come out of the Owen Stanley and Gona campaigns in January of that same year 
weighing only about 50 kilograms, having lost almost 30 kilograms in six months. After suffering several recurring bouts of malaria in the interim, I was back in New Guinea a few months later for the Lai Ramu Valley campaigns. Perhaps none of us was in a fit state of health to have been sent back so soon. I've always wondered if the jaundice was something I picked up or if it was just my liver's response to the unaccustomed rich fatty food we had when we lived with the Americans for that brief period. In fairness to their eating habits, however, I was the only one of the party who suffered with a complaint, so probably the food had nothing to do with it at all. Emergency Rations I wonder who invented the Australian Army Emergency Ration, carried by all soldiers during the 1939-45 war. Contained in a flat metal box about 130mm by 130 by 12 painted khaki green and sealed with sticking plaster, it weighed about 300 grams and was carried attached to the water bottle carrier. It contained food which was to be eaten only in an emergency, whatever that might mean. Along with all the soldiers of the paraphernalia, it was subject to every kit inspection and war betide anybody who couldn't produce it or a satisfactory explanation for its absence. This was before the days of use-by dates and I can't recall these rations ever being replaced because of their age. Indeed, when we went to New Guinea in July 1942, most of us would still have been carrying the same ones that we'd been issued with two years before. There'd been times in the Middle East when we were hungry and without other food, but apparently we didn't consider that the degrees of hunger we experienced there constituted emergencies. Although I can't remember seeing anyone eat his ration in the Middle East, we did eat them in New Guinea, because for some periods it was all we had. Indeed, they were sometimes supplied to us as normal rations when we were in the mountains. To be fair to the army... These rations probably survived being dropped by air better than most things, and as everything in the box was waterproof, they would have been relatively unaffected by the rain and humidity. From memory, I think that the box contained a cellophane bag of dehydrated meat and vegetables, a block of compressed fruit wrapped in cellophane, and a waxed paper strip containing six malted milk tablets. The fruit and the tablets were edible. The dehydrated meat and veg could not by any standards be so described. According to the instructions, the dried material was to be soaked in water for a specific period, then boiled. Being dehydrated, of course, it swelled to several times its original size when it was cooked. It was a yellowish colour with black specks and, and looked unpalatable either in the raw or prepared state. If one was in a position to follow the instructions, it was almost edible if one was hungry enough and had no taste and cast iron stomach. Whoever wrote the instructions had never been in the tropical jungle. It was difficult enough to get a fire going at the best of times and often there was the added disincentive that the smoke would attract the unwanted attention of the enemy's mountain gun, mortars and machine guns. 
In these circumstances, the dried food was either just mixed with water and eaten, or even eaten dry, in, in which case it swelled up inside to the detriment of stomachs already weakened by sickness and hunger. In either case, it was awful. One had to be in really dire circumstances to eat it like that, so perhaps it was well named an emergency ration. Curly O'Grady Curly O'Grady was several years older than most of us, and when we hit the Owen Stanley Mountains in New Guinea in 1942, he did it very hard. We'd stopped for a rest on one of those never-ending hills with their multitude of heartbreaking false crests. Too tired to take off our equipment, we just collapsed on the ground as we were. Curly started to swear with great venom, the tirade going on for several seconds. On being asked by a lethargic mate what was the matter, Curly asked, Do you remember the Japanese earthquake and fire in 1923, when all those people in Tokyo were killed, injured and homeless? Most of us were too young to remember, so were silent. Curly went on, Someone came around where I was working, asking for donations of money to help them out, and I gave them ten bob. Now, look what the have done to me. Emergency Exit After the recapture of the town of Lai on the north coast of PNG in September 1943, we started to move up the valleys of the Markham and Ramu rivers towards Dumpu village, and that part of the Finisterre ranges, which later was to be known as Shaggy Ridge. The second of the sixth independent company went ahead of the main body to drive the enemy from the village of Kayapit, about 80 kilometres from Lai, where there was a small airstrip which was overgrown but was capable of being extended. Work was started immediately to clear the long kunai grass, about one and a half metres high, from the old strip and as soon as possible, the US Air Force landed a small aircraft carrying a light engine-operated machine to expedite this work. An advance party was flown to Kaya Pit the next day while the rest of the brigade struggled up on foot. The aircraft used were the twin-engined Dakotas of the US Air Force, which each carried 20 men. A long seat ran down each side of the aircraft, the weapons and the equipment being stacked on the floor between the seats. The transport aircraft flew close to the ground in forward areas to minimise their vulnerability to enemy fighters, and normally they did not circle or pass over the strip prior to landing. We were in the first aircraft to arrive, soon after first light. The aircraft came in low over the palm trees at the end of the strip, with the wheels down and the engines throttled back. Immediately after touchdown, its nose dropped sharply, piling us all half-stunned up against the forward bulkhead in a tangle of arms, legs, weapons and equipment. The engine revolutions then increased suddenly and dramatically. The aircraft became airborne again for a few seconds, then settled back down on the ground and taxied to the end of the strip. We were still trying to sort ourselves out when the aircraft stopped. 
the wheels had scarcely stopped turning when the door to the crew compartment slammed open and a very angry pilot, pistol in hand, emerged. Ignoring us, he ran down the body of the aircraft, opened the side loading door, jumped to the ground and disappeared into the long grass, shouting a string of curses, the like of which I've seldom heard. We couldn't see anyone or anything that might have caused this unusual behaviour. Either the pilot had seen something we couldn't see, or else perhaps he'd just gone mad. It was some time before the pilot returned and had calmed down enough to tell us what had happened. He'd lost flying speed preparing to land when he saw the grass-cutting machine being operated in the centre of the narrow strip. Expecting that the operator would move the machine out of the way before the aircraft reached it, he continued to make the landing. The noise of the machine would have drowned out the sound of the approaching aircraft, so the operator apparently didn't become aware of it until the aircraft was almost on top of him. (laughs) At this point he did the only sensible thing, leaving the machine and running off the strip. The pilot landed the aircraft, but when he saw that the machine was stationary in his path, he applied the brakes. The aircraft almost stood on its nose and was in danger of flipping over. So the pilot released the brakes and opened the throttles, lifting the aircraft over the machine and bringing it down on the other side. A remarkable feat of quick thinking and flying skill. Unlike us, the pilot had seen it all happening. He was incensed at the behaviour of the machine operator and it was fortunate for them both that he was unable to find the operator who wisely remained hidden in the long grass or else was still running. We commiserated with the pilot at the time but later agreed among ourselves that each of us would have behaved exactly the same as the operator in the circumstances. Good clean fun. The army placed great importance on hygiene and for a very good reason. Armies have been decimated by disease since the dawn of time, much of it being caused or at least spread by the failure of people to understand the need for cleanliness. For this reason, strict discipline was exercised in the AIF to ensure that a satisfactory level of hygiene was maintained. Every unit had a special section dedicated to this purpose. For example, I think that this attention to cleanliness was behind the army rule that we must shave every day, even though many of us were so young that we really didn't need to. Beards were not permitted. Experience had shown that if men stopped shaving, it wasn't long before they also stopped washing, and their standard of hygiene continued to slide thereafter with a marked drop both in health and morale. I have seen it happen. As can be imagined, the maintenance of a good standard of hygiene created some very unpleasant jobs and was sometimes irksome, but it was accepted as being absolutely essential for our well-being. It was also the source of occasional humour. Those of us who started our military service in the old First World War camps with their extremely primitive ablution and toilet facilities, were particularly disadvantaged, or blessed, depending on how one looks at it, in comparison with those in the newer camps. The camp I was in at Seymour didn't have piped water. 
Mobile iron-wheeled furphy water carts provided the only water at the toilet and ablution blocks. As a matter of interest, it was the location of these water carts made by the Furphy brothers in Ballarat next to the toilet blocks during the First War that led to the use of the word Furphy to, <laughs> to mean a rumour. Traditionally, rumours were started and spread at the toilets or latrines as they were officially designated by the army. There was no electric power to the camp, the only lighting being from hurricane lamps. The toilet blocks were a long way from the tents. To accommodate the needs of several hundred men during the hours of darkness, sanitary cans were placed at regular intervals throughout the lines. These cans were about 40 centimetres high and 30 centimetres diameter, with two D-shaped carrying handles on the sides at the top. They were made of galvanised steel, coated with bitumen. Our hygiene section was not able to attend this service for the whole camp, so working parties of ordinary soldiers were detailed each day to distribute the empty cans before dark and to collect the full cans next morning. The full cans were carried to a pit about 300 metres away from the tents, where they were emptied and washed. Those engaged on this duty worked in pairs. The task had to be completed before breakfast. It was winter, and we wore woollen mittens or gloves at night because of the cold. The cans would often be overflowing when we picked them up in the mornings. As we carried them over the uneven ground in the half-light, the, the contents would spill over the sides, saturate our gloves, and occasionally the sleeves of our coats. It was not the most popular job in the camp, and we grumbled much when it was our turn, but it had to be done, and looking back on it, I suppose that it did have its moments of humour, particularly when someone else suffered a misfortunate accident. We'd not lived in tropical areas before we went to New Guinea, after coming back from the Middle East in 1942. Prior to moving into the Owen Stanley Mountains on the Kokoda track, we camped for a short period in open grassland at Bootless Inlet, not far from Port Moresby. The grass was about 60 centimetres high, and it was dry. The risk of disease in the tropics was apparently much greater than elsewhere we'd been, so special attention was being paid to hygiene. One of the new rules was that all empty cans must be burned to remove traces of food from them before they were dumped. This was to make them unattractive to the many flies that abounded there and were said to be responsible for spreading disease. The important task of burning the cans had been assumed by the hygiene corporal himself and he made an entertaining three-act play out of it. We'd be eating our meals scattered in small groups, sitting on the ground around the cookhouse when it was done. The empty cans had been put in a 44-gallon drum with an open top outside the cookhouse. Having obtained a large can of petrol from the transport lines, the corporal would tip most of the petrol over the cans in the drum. Then, walking backwards, he'd lay a trail of petrol on the ground to a point about five metres from the drum. On arrival at his predetermined position, he'd replace the screw cap on the empty petrol can and place it on the ground behind him. Behind one ear, he carried a cigarette rolled previously for the occasion. Placing the cigarette in his mouth, he'd strike a match and light the cigarette, 
then throw the lighted match onto the petrol trail in front of him. This would ignite immediately and burn its way to the drum, which became engulfed in flames. Having accomplished this, the corporal would stand back with arms folded and smoke his cigarette, very proud of his handiwork. One day, either by mistake or because some wag had put it there, a full can of a green vegetable had got in with the empty cans. This can expl- <laughs> this can exploded when it got hot, splattering the corporal with pieces of hot vegetable and blowing out a shower of empty cans containing burning petrol, each of which started a fire in the long grass. As can be imagined, there was great hilarity from everybody, (laughs) except the hygiene corporal, who refused to believe that it had been an accident and made all sorts of defamatory remarks about us and our parents. He wouldn't even give us any credit for helping him extinguish the many resultant grass fires. The Horse with Nine Lives Two of us had gone back from outside Gona to the dropping ground at Jumbora to escort a native carrying party bringing supplies forward. The carriers didn't normally work at night, but there was some urgency in this case and the trip was made in darkness. The track was heavy going, the mud being above ankle deep in most places. We'd stopped to let the carriers have a rest in a patch of kunai grass where the ground was relatively dry. It was a bright, moonlit night. One of the carriers came to us, looking very troubled, saying, Taubada, master, come. He'd been sitting on the insulated telephone wire, which lay on the ground beside the track, when he'd felt it move. We could feel that something was tugging at the wire, We reasoned that it would not be any of our own people who would have known what it was, so the most likely alternative seemed to be an enemy patrol. Cocking our weapons, we moved up the track following the wire until it departed at right angles from the track into the long grass, which at that place was above head height. We followed the wire into the grass, moving as quietly as we could, until we could hear something moving a couple of metres in front of us. Shoulder to shoulder we leapt through the grass. Facing us was a dilapidated, weary-looking old horse standing with its head down. In my mind's eye I can still see in that split second of time that even its ears did not prick up when we burst in on its reverie. The wire had become hooked in a loose shoe and entangled round one of its feet. It had been kicking half-heartedly, attempting to free itself. When our hearts had gone back to their proper places, we untangled the wire. The animal stood quietly while we did this, and I don't think that it even looked up as we walked away, uncaring and unaware how close it had come to joining its ancestors a few years ahead of time. What a sweet story to end on, poor horsey. We've got a PS coming up shortly which has echoes of a story the late veteran Wilf Shaw once told about having a bath whilst in action. Before that, I'll say thank you so very much for your support and for making the time to listen to me. 
And please write, like, rate, review, or share the show howsoever it pleases you. Above all, enjoy. Please do hear me next time when we'll hear more of Les's adventures, 1943-44, to in the Middle East and more. P.S. Bathing in Seymour. Seymour can be a very cold place in the winter. The old camps, relics of the First War, were fairly primitive and it was apparent that little attention was paid at that time to the need of people to wash. On the other hand, of course, perhaps they were a much tougher race of people than we were. Those of us who'd enlisted from the Melbourne area were given leave to go home every second weekend, which meant that we took this opportunity to have a bath. I don't know how the country people got on. After a few weeks of this, the CO, taking the high moral ground befitting his august position, pointed out to us the error of our ways and the importance of hygiene. Cleanliness, he told us, was next to godliness, and while he might not be able to do much about the latter, he certainly could and would do something about the cleanliness. To this end, there'd be a compulsory bath parade each week for the rank and file, so this would not interfere with the training schedule it would be held after the evening meal. The bath parades were organised by companies, each comprising about 100 men. The facilities consisted of several, perhaps ten, galvanised iron tubs with about 40 centimetres diameter and 20 centimetres deep, each containing about six litres of water. These were lined up in soldierly fashion, equispaced on the ground, in the open near the kitchen. Hot water was provided from the Sawyer stoves at the kitchen. We paraded dressed only in our overcoats and boots, unlaced, each carrying his cake of soap and towel. As each detail stepped forward to the tubs, the men removed their overcoats and boots and stood in the tubs to wash themselves. The operation was supervised by an officer who held a hurricane lamp after dark so so that he could see that it was being done properly. It was freezing. The strong wind blew the soap dry on the top half of the body before one had time to rinse it off. I remember with great clarity the relief at getting back into my overcoat at the end. I forget how long these bath parades continued, but it couldn't have been very long because a large number of people ended up in hospital with flu or bad colds. This had an even more detrimental effect on the training schedule. Whoever you are, wherever and whenever you've served, thank you for your service. I'm Paul Cheel saying, Toodle Pip! <laughs>